Welcome to the Factal Forecast, a look at the week's biggest stories and what they mean from the editors at Factal. I'm Jimmy Levis. Today is February 9th, and in this week's forecast, we've got a federal judge in Texas deciding on an abortion medication case, an election in Cyprus, negotiations between the Colombian government and a rebel group, China's Sichuan province lifting restrictions on childbirth, and a look at the devastating earthquakes affecting Turkey and Syria. You can also read about these stories and more in our weekly newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. As soon as tomorrow, a federal judge in Texas could render a decision that drastically alters abortion access in the United States. It's a case brought by a conservative legal group that seeks to limit the access to the abortion medication Mifepristone. That drug was approved by the U.S. FDA in 2000 as part of a two-step medication abortion procedure. This case, filed in November 2022 by a group called the Alliance Defending Freedom, seeks to effectively reverse that approval by claiming both that the original decision was flawed and that it is not legal to send abortion pills through the mail. The case will be decided by Trump-appointed Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who is known for his conservative views on abortion and LGBTQ rights, as well as his work as an attorney with a conservative Christian legal group. Now, medical abortions have become more commonplace after the 2022 Supreme Court Dobbs ruling, especially in states where access to surgical abortion is limited. If the judge sides with the anti-abortion group, the ruling would force the FDA to pull mifepristone from sale and restart the approval process, which could take years. Two opposing cases have been filed in West Virginia and North Carolina that would seek to shore up FDA approval of mifepristone. If these cases produce a different result to the Texas suit, or appeals are filed, the Supreme Court, with its conservative majority, could be forced to make a final ruling. The presidential election in Cyprus will head to a second round on Sunday. The runoff comes after former Foreign Minister Nikos Christodoulidis and independent candidate Andres Mavroyanis failed to secure the majority of votes last week. According to exit polls, Christodoulidis secured around 32% of the votes, while Mavroyanis received 29.6%. Averof Niafatu, head of the right-wing ruling Democratic Rally Party, came in third with 26%, which came as a surprise as many expected him to be one of the top two favorite candidates to progress. Now, these elections, which had a record of 14 candidates running for president in the first round, are seen by some as the most significant poll since the country's independence more than 60 years ago. Several crucial issues are dividing the voters, including the cost-of-living crisis, corruption, and migration. The country's ethnic division between Greek Cypriots and those in the Turkish-controlled northern part of the island also remains on the agenda. Finally, Christodoulidis, who is backed by centrist parties that are keen to restart reunification talks, refused to rule out future coalitions with any party, including the ultranationalist Alam. Representatives of the Colombian government and the National Liberation Army rebel group will meet in Mexico on Monday. The meeting follows an initial round of peace talks held in Caracas, Venezuela last December. Negotiations will resume with Spain as a newly added supporting country. Brazil will also join the guarantors list along with Chile, Mexico, Norway, and Venezuela. 
The meeting follows a lapse in public tensions between the rebels and the government after President Petra's administration unilaterally announced a bilateral ceasefire agreement, which was later denied by the guerrilla group. Now, the agenda for the meeting is expected to cover social participation in peacebuilding, the conditions for a bilateral ceasefire, forced disappearances during the conflict, and failures and achievements in previous negotiations. The rebel group's top commander, Antonio Garcia, has made claims that the group is not looking for a transition into politics as part of the peace process, and has said a change in the Colombian government's military doctrine is essential to achieve agreements. Sichuan, one of China's largest provinces, will no longer limit how many childbirths a person can register or restrict who can register new births starting Wednesday. Sichuan's new policy is only the latest in a gradual easing of childbirth restrictions in China since 2016, when the national government replaced its infamous one-child policy with a two-child limit. After seeing little success, Beijing went on to lift the cap to three children in 2021, but birth rates have continued to decline. In fact, China reported its first population fall in decades just last month. The country's shrinking, aging population is an increasingly urgent challenge for China's policymakers, with potentially dire consequences. Now, though this policy affects Sichuan's population of some 83 million people, it's not likely to make an immediate impact on China's demographic crisis. High costs of living, lack of employment, and changing social views among younger people in China remain major factors inhibiting population growth. Sichuan's reforms, however, will likely improve the lives of unmarried parents and children born out of wedlock in the province, who will now be able to access vital public services previously barred to them. Our last item for this forecast is on the devastating earthquakes along the Turkey-Syria border. For more on that, I spoke with the Factal Senior Editor, Halima Mansour. Hello, Halima! Hi, Jimmy. So glad to finally have you on the podcast. Hoping you can get us caught up on everything we need to know about these terrible earthquakes. I guess to start, just how big were they? So the first earthquake measured 7.8, and it hit the Turkish Mediterranean and southeastern regions around 4 a.m. local time Monday. This was near the Syrian border. Then a second shallower earthquake of magnitude 7.5 struck the same region nine hours later. That second earthquake and dozens of strong aftershocks caused more buildings to collapse. And keep in mind, this was while residents and emergency services were trying to rescue people. So the second quake and the aftershocks buried even more people. Now, I know the counts are just preliminary at this point, since rescue operations are still going. But do we have any idea on how many lives have been impacted by the quake so far? Well, as you said, it is hard to quantify, but for now, we know more than 15,000 people are dead, including more than 12,300 in Turkey and 3,000 in Syria. Another 68,000 people have been injured so far. This includes at least 63,000 in Turkey and 5,000 in Syria. Um, one thing we should keep in mind that all the tolls coming out of northwest Syria are combined ones from regime-held officials and rebel-held areas officials. When you set aside the death tolls, there are then the people whose houses have become unlivable. And this could be because they collapsed or they're too dangerous to enter again for the foreseeable future. So for some scale, I can say that the WHO says at least 23 million people may have been affected by Monday's earthquakes. The health body expects 
a serious increase, they say, in the number of deaths because of the sort of scale of devastation across both countries. Well, can you explain a bit about the areas involved? So the areas that were hit in Turkey were not as developed as Istanbul in terms of infrastructure or population, but they did include some significant centers of trade and wealth. This includes Urfa and Antep. The Turkish provinces that were hit by the earthquake that are closer to the Syrian border have a more diverse population, which comprises of people who are of Turkish, Kurdish and Arab descent, as well as other ethnicities. Then there's, of course, Diyarbakir province, which has been a witness to the Kurdish conflict for many years and is considered to be underdeveloped, even though there has been no active war there for years now. Then you look at northwest Syria, which is, of course, another story entirely. Uh, Syrians who live in northwest Syria were displaced by 12 years of war and are already living in very rough conditions. The area is controlled by the opposition groups which is rebels, as well as groups associated with some militants. And all of these are further split by infighting. So that means that the people living there are living in a war zone, which is not governed very efficiently to begin with. And this was before the earthquake even struck. How have both countries responded to the devastation? You know, and for that matter, how has the international community responded? Well, Turkey has deployed troops, its disaster agency, other um, arms of the government for the rescue efforts. And the international community has sent in rescue teams from multiple countries, including Israel, South Korea, Mexico, and a bunch of others. But it could still be said that the initial response from Turkey was disjointed and a bit slow. You would see this on social media, which was flooded after the first earthquake and the second earthquake with eyewitness reports that there was no help coming. People who were trapped under the debris were messaging their loved ones for help. And those messages were then circulating on social media by um, well-wishers or Turkish people just sending it to each other, tagging the disaster agency to come step in, help these people, sending their addresses and stuff. But I suppose at this point, it is fair to say that in the months after this disaster, the Turkish people themselves will ask the question, did the government act quickly enough? To make matters worse, Twitter, which played a huge role in rescue efforts, as I explained earlier, was blocked today, as was TikTok. This um, resulted in more rescue work being hindered. When you look at Syria, on the other hand, international response itself has been scanned. And as I explained earlier, the governance of northwest Syria is split along uh, multiple groups. So rescue efforts in the country have been split along the lines of the Assad regime and the White Helmet Civil Defense Agency. Now, the White Helmets have earned themselves a lot of respect for stellar rescue work during the war, but they are by no way equipped for this scale of disaster. And if you couple this disjointed response in Syria with the fact that access to northwest Syria to Turkey was initially closed and still remains limited, things are looking very difficult. Well, I know there's a ton to consider, but what do you think folks should be watching for next? Well, as rescue efforts continue and thousands of people are still believed to be trapped under rubble in both countries, the survivors who are trapped are at risk of hypothermia as both regions are registering freezing temperatures. People have been found after being trapped for 50 to 60 hours, but there's still a high risk. And that impacts both those who are survivors as well as those who are undertaking rescue efforts. Um, over in Northwest Syria, Entire areas, entire rebel-held neighborhoods that already face the, sort of like the daily threat of war are now tackling an even greater emergency. And this is while there it has been an economic collapse, there is a lack of international aid, and the infrastructure has already been devastated because of war. 
The one thing I can say for sure is that we will all be watching for how this earthquake impacts the Turkish elections, which are coming up soon. People in Turkey are upset and they are questioning the response of the government. And their their reaction might get worse in the coming months as people take stock of all that they have lost. We already see the Turkish government is cracking down on criticism over the last couple of years. They have established laws that critics say are meant to censor um, any sort of um, dissent. After the earthquake, the presidential communication directorate in Turkey was very quick to actually arrest people over tweets or social media posts that were called uh, misinformation. And we saw that they shut down Twitter and TikTok today. So there is a sense that the government wants to control the narrative. And that is just ahead of the elections. In the past, in Turkey, a government's response to a natural disaster would impact the outcome of the elections. So we all should watch for how the Turkish opposition leverages this and how the government responds to the people's discontent. Well, Halima, I think we'll leave it there for today, but I thank you so much for helping us understand the size and scope of this disaster. Thank you, Jimmy. Take care. As always, thank you for listening to The Factual Forecast. We publish our forward-looking podcast and newsletter each Thursday to help you get a jump start on the week ahead. Please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts. And we'd love it if you consider telling a friend about us. Today's episode was produced with work from Factual Editors Sophie Perrier, Jess Fino, Irene Viora, Vivian Wang, and Agnese Bofano. Our interview featured editor Halima Mansour, and our music comes courtesy of Andrew Gosby. Until next time, if you have any feedback, suggestions, or events we've missed, drop us a note by emailing hello at factual.com.